Welcome to Paranormal Coffee Hour. We're your hosts, Jen. And Courtney. And we're pouring you a strong cup of the weird, the wonderful, and the woohoo. On this episode of Paranormal Coffee Hour, we are talking about the craziness known as vampires. Ooh, creepy. Courtney, what do you know about vampires? They like to suck your blood. Who's the most famous vampire you know? Count Dracula. I was thinking of the Count on Sesame Street. I was. <laughs> and he of, just counts shit. <laughs> and of course, there's True Blood, Stephanie Meyer's vampires. Edward. Yes, they glow. Mm-hmm. So a lot of pop culture has taught us that vampires are bloodsuckers. They've gotten to be romanticized in a lot of literature, such as Anne Rice, who first gave us the romanticized version of vampires. Ah, uh, yes. With Lestat. Yes. And... Stephanie Myers, who continued that romancing of vampires with the Twilight series. Yeah, and then the whole vampires not liking garlic, we can't be friends. <laughs> Courtney's not a vampire. So what we're going to do on the podcast today, though, is we're not going to talk about the romantic style of vampire that has come through literature and pop culture. We're going to talk about real vampires. Did you know they're real? Yes. And we're going to let you decide what makes them real. Exactly. So we're going to take this back in time because for most people, the concept of a vampire starts in Romania with Vlad the Impaler. Oh, I love Vlad. Because that's what Bram Stoker had based Dracula off of. But little do many people know, vampire legends go back much farther than that. So the first piece of information I'm going to share with you guys comes from an article by Diane Schmitz for s'more.com. It's kind of a cute name. In the article, Diane talks about the scriptures of Delhi. She says that specifically, there is a collection of writings in the scriptures of Delhi known as the Vampire Bible. The first vampire started out as not a vampire at all, but as a human man named Ambrosio. He was an Italian-born adventurer who fate brought to Delphi in Greece. Specifically, it began with the sun god Apollo, who in a fit of rage cursed Ambrosio so that his skin would burn should it ever touch sunlight again. Ambrosio's bad luck followed when he ended up gambling away his soul to Hades, the god of the underworld. The next curse came from Apollo's sister, Artemis, the goddess of the moon and hunting, who made it so that Ambrosio's skin would burn if he ever touched silver. The blessings soon came after when Artemis, taking pity on the poor young man, gave Ambrosio the gift of immortality. He would carry his curses, his skin burning by sunlight or silver, but he would live forever in his current form. Not only that, but Artemis also gave Ambrosio the speed and strength to become a hunter whose skills were second only to her own. Blood sucking is also included in this blessing. In the vampire original story, Ambrosio hunts swans and uses their blood as ink to write love poems to his lady, Celine. How would you like to get a love poem written in blood, Courtney? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> no questions asked there. While this may be considered a little creepy by our standards, no shit. It wasn't all that unusual in ancient Greece to make do with what you hunted. Hmm. Ambrosio would later move back to Italy 
now as a full-fledged vampire. Legend traces him to the city of Florence, where he creates the first vampire clan. We don't know a whole lot about this clan, other than they were most likely willing volunteers, humans who wanted power and immortality. Ooh, pick me, pick me. And were willing to trade their souls for it. You still wanting to be picked? Well... Some people say I don't have a soul, so... It was believed that the curse would continue for any vampire where their souls would remain in the underworld with Hades and where they could return to claim them but could never leave. From what we know of the history of vampires, the clan would grow in size and strength until infighting created something of a civil war within the clan, and many vampires left to form their own clans. What happened to Ambrosio and those who stayed with him is largely unknown, though many believe that he still resides somewhere in the city of Florence, Italy. Hmm. Interesting. So where else do we see vampire creation stories? We also see them in ancient Mesopotamia. They had uh, stories involving blood drinking demons. The Persians were also one where the first civilizations thought to have tales of such monsters depicted on excavated pottery shards, which I find interesting. It is interesting. And I actually have a story from Mesopotamia of one of their particular demons. Ooh. In the Mesopotamian Empire, there were these creatures called Ikimu. I think that's how it's pronounced. Ikimu means snatched away. Mesopotamians dreaded the Ikimu and prayed that they themselves were not one day turned into an angry, bitter spirit banished to roam the earth in search of peace. The Ikimu are said to appear as a demon phantom-like creature that searches for victims to feed its misery. The Mesopotamians also called the Ikimu evil wind gusts. (laughs) Okay. Now, unlike stereotypical vampires, the Ikimu does not drink blood in order to live. Instead, it feeds off the life forces of plants, animals, elements, and humans by tapping into their aura. Mesopotamians believe that you could become one of these evil wind gusts by, are you ready for this? Take note, people. Dying violently from murder. Dying young. Death from a battle or war. Death before finding love. Improper burial or no burial at all. Dying during pregnancy. Dying from drowning. Dying from starvation. Improper offerings to the gods. If an Akimu were to show up on your doorstep, it would not be a good sign. Usually within a few days, the inhabitants of the household that the Akimu evaded would die. An Akimu could also make the living behave criminally or could inflict disease upon them. Not a friendly fella, hey? Not at all. And they still exist, according to this. Legends about the Akimu exist today, and modern Akimu are believed to wander the earth among the homeless, living in sewers, tunnels, and abandoned buildings. They tend to stay in run-down urban areas. You know, modern society, they can't choose to be in better places. Go to the areas where the energy is low. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So, Courtney, shall we talk about one of your favorite legends that go along with vampires? Yeah, I love Lilith. Many people do not realize, but Lilith was Adam's first wife. You know, Adam and Eve. Yeah. It is mainly only for, I guess, the Jewish faith. Faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was born and raised Catholic. You were born and raised Catholic. They don't seem to 
know about Lilith. Yeah, they don't let us hear about that at all. So in the Old Testament, in the Jewish faith, Lilith is actually quite a prominent figure, at least for a part of the time. The legend of Lilith is rooted in Babylonian demonology. And it's argued that Lilith is a dark demigoddess similar to Hecate. As legend goes, Lilith, like we said, is the first wife of Adam, and she disobeyed her husband and is forever doomed to wander the earth as a demon. Let's talk about what she disobeyed him with. She would not lay down for him. Was- for, se- for basically missionary style sexual encounter. Correct. Mm-hmm. So she got kicked out of the Garden of Eden and he took on another wife. Yes, that would do his <laughs> bidding and obey. So she is basically doomed to wander the earth as a demon because of this. Lilith can shapeshift and often hunts in the form of an owl. Her victims of choice were newborn children and pregnant women. The Mesopotamian society also blamed Lilith for putting erotic dreams into the minds of men. Damn you. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the church would add Lilith to the demonic army of incubi and succubi, who would seduce and feed upon innocent, unknowing victims through sexual intercourse. I love how they give the men a way out that they have no control over their own minds or bodies. Well, we are talking about a patriarchal society. That's valid. Mm-hmm. So, Cart, we're going to move out of the Middle East, the ancient Middle East, and we're going to head over to Asia and some of the vampire legends that are existing in various Asian countries. One of the common themes we're going to see in these Asian vampiric folklores are grotesque figures of the night that haunt the living via displays of detached body parts. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Many of these vampires are actually female, and they disguise themselves as attractive young or old women by day, and then they transform into hellish demons at night. So, Courtney, why don't you share with us one of our first vampire legends? Where is it coming from? Southeast Asia. One of the most fascinating vampires is the Pengalan. According to Atlas Obscura, in life, these undead creatures were women who tried to use magic to become more beautiful, but broke the terms of their magical agreement. In death, they hunger for the blood of newborn babies. It is their appearance, however, that makes them so unique. During the day, they appear to be women, often working as midwives to get closer to vulnerable infants. At night, their heads fly from their bodies. Dragging their organs below. Oh my god. I love that. Motionless and gutless body behind, like an empty shell. Jellyfish, anybody? (laughs) While hunting, the Pengalin can control her loose viscera like tentacles and uses them to reach into houses at night. Those wishing to stop the attacks must first determine who the Pengalin is. One hint is that she has a strong smell of vinegar, which she uses to soak her entrails before returning to her body. Good hygiene. Yeah, exactly. If the empty corpse is discovered, the body can be stuffed with shards of broken glass. When the Pengalin returns to reattach to the body, her organs will be lacerated as she tries to force them inside. What an interesting picture to paint. I just want to know who's finding these random bodies without a head and innards. Right. Like, just pop the head off. Pop it off. Throw some glass in. What the hell? (laughs) Fantastic. Disturbing, more like it. Well, let's keep that disturbing going because I've got one from the Philippines. This is known as the Mandarugo. It means bloodsucker. And it takes the form of a beautiful girl by day and then sprouts wings and grows a long proboscis-like tongue by night. Think of like 
hummingbird. They have a proboscis. Its diet consists of human entrails, the mucus of the ill, and even fetuses of pregnant women. Delish. Mm, Yes. The Tagalog ethnic group of the Philippines tells a story entitled the girl with many loves that describes a gorgeous 16-year-old girl who marries rather husky men who continuously wither away into nothingness. Diet plan, anyone? Her fourth husband awakes one night to feel something pricking his neck, prompting him to stab the unknown source of pain with a close-kept knife. Okay, I'd have a lot of mosquitoes running around with knives in them if that happened. No kidding. His wife is found dead the next morning, not far from their cottage with a knife wound to her chest. Hmm, interesting. So where are we going now, Court? We have an India one. Way up there in terms of voracious specimens, northern India's lore describes a type of vampire with a pretty horrific sense of fashion. After having torn open its victims and having sucked out their brains, its favorite treats, mm, brains, the Braha Marpurusha, goes about wrapping the person's intestines in a turban around its head. What is up with all these intestines? <laughs> I'm not out? sure. Besides considering human smelly intestines as its trophies, it further carries around the now brainless skull of the poor sod that bumped into him like a cup from which to leisurely drink his or her blood. Delicious. anyone? <laughs> right. Like, holy There's a tie in the last time's coffee hour. I'm, wow. Okay. Mmm, delicious. So there's a lot more stories, by the way, that occur in Asia. We're just giving you a few of them. So we're going to travel ourselves across the continent and we're going to head back towards Europe and we're going to stick ourselves in the Slavic nations of Europe, which would be Eastern Europe, and talk about some of the vampire legends that occur there. Where most of them kind of originated for Hollywood. So the vampire that we know today is someone we want to know, at least according to pop culture. (laughs) Maybe even somebody we want to date if he's into it. However, he wasn't always a clean-shaven, handsome mystery man. In fact, part of the history of the vampires begins with an evil spirit, something that would creep in in your bedroom at night, sit on top of the sleeper, causing feelings of suffocation. So the modern Kajubian people of Poland and the Slavs in Serbia and Croatia still lose sleep over the fear of the mora. This is why we associate vampires as being night dwellers. So how is it that the fear of vampires is so prevalent throughout the world? Well, the Slavic nations would share their folklores and myths, corrupting or altering the culture of the nations and what they should really fear. So we have a story of a gentleman known as Gier or Huer, depends on how they'd want to pronounce it, Grando. He is credited as being possibly the first real person described as a vampire in historical records. Grando was from Istria, which is located now in modern Croatia. According to legend, after his death in 1656, he came back as a Strigoi and caused hysteria to his village for 16 years. 16 years. He would rise from his grave at night and knock on the doors around the village. And within days, someone from the house he visited would die. He even appeared to his widow one night in her bedroom. She claimed that he would sexually assault her. When she described his appearance, she said his corpse always looked out of breath and appeared to be smiling, staring at her over her bed. Maybe he's just out of shape, honey. 
right? <laughs> there were many attempts to defeat the vampire. The village priest tried to perform exorcism prayers on him. And when he came face to face with him, he held out a cross and yelled, Behold, Jesus Christ, you vampire, stop tormenting us. Immediately, tears began to fall from Grando's eyes. Villagers dug up his grave and they tried to pierce the corpse's heart, but the hawthorn stick that they used could not penetrate his flesh. Finally, one villager named Stepan Milasik took a saw and he sawed the vampire's head off. Oh dear. Horrible screams and blood spilled out everywhere on the grave. Finally, there was peace in the village. <laughs> That's a bit disturbing. Just take off his head. <laughs> so they mentioned the term stragoi in that. Yes. What is a stragoi? Stragoi um, actually is the term from Romania. And let me give you a little background on it. Transylvania, located in central Romania, has become linked with vampire lore. This has even made it a tourist destination for vampire fans, as can be seen from the variety of vampire-themed events available from sites like Transylvania Live. Wow. While it may have gotten notoriety as the homeland of Dracula, the creatures in the folk stories of Romania are quite different. The living Strigoi are depicted as being born with tails, but they might never be seen at all because they have the ability to turn invisible. Signs that a community is being plagued by a living Strigoi include cows going dry, men becoming sterile, and the spread of disease. While living Strigoi have a lot of differences from the vampires of Hollywood monster movies, they share a weakness. Garlic. Those assholes. The traditional way to ward them off is by smearing garlic oil on the doors and windows. The dead Strigoi are corpses that never decompose. According to traditional stories in life, they were individuals who had two souls, and when they died, only one left the body. They can also be created by failing to provide the dead with proper funeral rites. They return from the grave and haunt their still living relatives at night. They may come in animal form or as insects, shadows, or fire. Hmm, interesting. So I found a little bit of information. I talked about female Strigoi. So they say that female Strigoi can come back and actually marry and try to lead normal lives, but they will soon exhaust their husband with their sexual appetite if they haven't killed them already. Praying mantis, anyone? Right? The male Strigoi can have children called Dampiers. These children can grow up to detect and hurt vampires. So vampire hunters. So basically, male Strigoi can produce vampire hunters that come back and kill them. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So according to Slavic nations, people can return as a vampire after death if they are, we ready? Born with a call, extra nipple, a tail, or extra hair. Ah. They are the seventh son of the seventh son or the seventh sister to the seventh sister. Oh, draw that one out. Born too early. <laughs> Somebody whose mother crossed paths with a black cat. What if you had a black cat? You're screwed. If a pregnant woman did not eat salt or gazed upon a witch or vampire, her child was then doomed. Holy There's shit. that salt again. A child born out of wedlock. We're screwed. Yeah. Unnatural death. You were bitten by a vampire. You died before you were baptized. Are we ready for this one, everybody? You have red hair and blue eyes. Aw, shit. Damn it, gingers. You died alone and unseen. What? Yeah, exactly. People who were born doomed could seek blessings from the church and be baptized. You would then be spared the fate of a reawakening. Okay. Of course, the church covers your ass. Mm -hmm. Other things that could become vampires were, 
according to Slavic nations, dogs, cats, plants, and are you ready for this one? Pumpkins. What? (laughs) Vampire pumpkins. Shut the front door. So this excerpt about vampire pumpkins, I can't even say it without laughing, is taken from the book Encyclopedia of Spirits, The Ultimate Guide to the Magic of Fairies, Genies, Demons, Ghosts, Gods, and Goddesses by Judica Isles. Eat pumpkins quickly lest they turn into vampires. People aren't the only beings who can become vampiric. According to Balkan Romani folk traditions, hard-shelled, seedy fruits and vegetables can become vampires too. Although melons and squashes can also be vampiric, pumpkins, maybe because of Halloween associations, have garnered the most attention. Now I know why I don't eat melons. Yeah. Other than an allergy. The potential vampire is activated when a pumpkin is kept longer than 10 days or not consumed before Christmas, leaving it out all night exposed to a full moon may activate the transformation too. (laughs) Not every pumpkin is guaranteed to turn into a vampire, just as not every corpse is expected to rise. Vampire pumpkins betray themselves. Am I going to turn into a vampire because I am like scowling or like, what the fuck? I I can't read this without laughing. Vampire pumpkins betray themselves by making growling noises. Uh, your pumpkins growling at me? What the fuck? <laughs> or developing red, vaguely blood-like splotches on their shells. In general, there is no need to worry, Courtney, about vampire pumpkins very much, as they don't possess teeth. Oh, good. <laughs> Get your pumpkin off my leg. It's trying to bite me. They can't cause sudden immediate harm. They are, however, unhealthy to keep around as they gradually absorb psychic energy from those around them. If a person is debilitated with low energy and a weak aura, such pumpkins can eventually cause damage, although it is a slow process. Vampire pumpkins also attract malevolent spirits. So how do we take care of this? <clears throat> Plunge pumpkins or other suspect produce (laughs) in the boiling water to kill them then break them into pieces and make them into pumpkin spice lattes no just kidding you're supposed to get rid of them drown you pumpkin (laughs) drown the traditional weapon for breaking pumpkins is a branch or a handmade broom which is also discarded after done so there you go ladies and gentlemen watch out for those pumpkins oh my word. So let's move our pumpkin spice fearing selves over the prime meridian and into the Americas. Courtney, why don't you take us to Brazil and talk to us about vampire legends that exist there? Yeah, we're going to talk about the Asima. The Asima is able to live side by side with ordinary humans. During the day, they appear to be elderly men or women, but at night they transform into a glowing orb. Like the Lugaru, these vampires are often depicted as shed- their human skin to reveal their true form. According to the element encyclopedia of vampires, this blinding ball of light can be pale, blue, red, deep, aquamarine, or dark blue. The Sima hunts by flying through the sky searching for its prey, sleeping humans below. When they find one, they either transform back into their human form to drain them of blood or remain as a glowing orb to drain their energy. The pale blue Asima drains people slowly over time, so its victims are likely to survive their first attacks. The red, dark blue, and aquamarine varieties can be deadly in just a single night. Jerks. If a human eats garlic, their blood becomes distasteful to the Asima. I'm fine. Like many other vampires, they are also compulsive counters, so piles of seeds make distract them. This is where the count from Sesame Street came from. Ha! <laughs> to ultimately destroy an Asima, however... 
their discarded human skin must be found and burned. So we're just going to find this out in the, <laughs> in the middle of, the, you know, the road or something like, oh, hey, I wonder who left their skin behind. Like, hey, here's a meat suit just laying uh, around. We should mm, burn this. We should burn this. Yeah. Because that's going to be my first thought when I find a meat suit just discarded. I'm not going to call somebody. I'm just going to burn it and discard like, it. Hey, there's a meat suit just laying here. We should burn this. <laughs> I... Fantastic. Oh, my stars. All right. Let's head a little farther north into Mexico. We're going to talk about the Mother Earth goddess of Mexico to the indigenous people known as the Chihuahuatl. Bless you. <laughs> Her name was frequently called out during childbirth. <laughs> I laugh because that's a fun one to say. Uh the goddess of midwives is what she's known as and women who died while giving birth she would help take care of them okay the chihuateto described in chicana sexuality and gender culture refiguring and literature oral history and art has her described as a reproductive demon they are sometimes depicted as having been virgins in life or those who died in childbirth they wait at crossroads and when a man passes by they attempt to seduce him into adultery or other sexual transgressions if a child comes to the crossroads the chihuateteo will hunt them. They also attack infants, pregnant women, and women who have recently had children. The Chihuateteo stories are believed to have influenced the popular legend of La Llorona, or the weeping woman. La Llorona story has many variations, but often describes her as a woman who killed her own children and now wanders by the water, wailing in remorse. Adults in the southwestern United States tell this story to children to discourage them from going out after dark or being careless by the water. Now, I've worked with children whose families are originally from Mexico. They tell them this no matter where they live, okay? So this is being told in Wisconsin, too, to young children to keep them safe and from wandering around at night. Because I remember one kid telling me one time, Miss Lemers, La Llorona's gonna get you if you're out at night. Oh my gosh. <laughs> These poor kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm, I'll take that risk. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna head a little farther north into... The United States. Ooh. Courtney, what do we have going on in the U.S.? Ooh. The Fifolet. Although the Fifolet is said to be African American, it is very well known to the people who live in Louisiana. The Fifolet is known to be an unbaptized child who has passed away. The child comes back to life as a spirit and murders children by sucking their blood. Ooh, you little bastard. Lovely. <laughs> their home after death is the nearest swamp where they are seen as a form of light. Say fucking what? Swamp gas. Yeah. What the hell? But we're going to head north again and into Canada because, yes, ladies and gentlemen, even Canada has its own vampire legend. The story is described, it sounds like this might be indigenous Canadians. They call them the Wupuji or Wupshi, sorry. Whoopsie. <laughs> Whoopsie. If a child is born with two front teeth, it is said to be a whoopsie. To get the vampire out of the child, you can crush up the feces made by it and then feed it back to the child. CPS, anybody? <laughs> this, however, isn't the only option. As the child grows up, there are specific ways to stop it from becoming a vampire. If the methods do not work, then killing the vampire is the only solution. CPS oh. again. <laughs> to kill the vampire, there are a couple methods. One is to cut the head off of corpse and then place it between its feet in the coffin. The vampire's blood is then given to its victims. If the vampire somehow arises, you should open the coffin and stick a nail between its eyes. Oh, how do you know who his victims are? Well, here's the thing. Supposedly, this type of vampire picks its victims by chance. And uh, 
<laughs> basically it says he or she the vampire awakens at midnight and eats their clothes and flesh and then goes to the nearest church to ring the bell whomever hears the bell is said to be the next victim you know it's kind of reminds me of another item that we have around Wisconsin where it eats its own flesh. You wow. know what I'm talking about? Yeah, but mm-hmm. oh my stars. And and yeah, and for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just going to say the name real quick, the Wendigo, but it's a very similar type of creature. I wonder if you feed it its own shit if it would die. <laughs> It'd probably be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> What do you do to me? So the purpose of us sharing all of these different legends with you is to show that vampire legends, though they are different and some of them are like, how is that a vampire? They have existed pre-biblical times, okay? They've been around for a very, very long very long time. And it's not just Romania. It's not just Vlad the Impaler who Stoker decided to turn into a vampire. These things have been around and told in various cultures throughout the world. And different continents. What it's believed is that vampires actually first appeared among the prehistoric Slavics as a belief in lycanthropy or werewolfism. The werewolf was the main predator of this time and was both feared and admired by tribes of today's Poles, Czechs, and Russians. The Slavs' great belief in the power of nature led to the early belief that some people were capable of transforming themselves into wolves during the night at their own will or after death. Sounds like a lot of the beliefs that many of our native cultures have in shapeshifters. Yes. This belief grew stronger and through the natural progression of logic, the half-human wolf that preyed on human blood soon evolved into the solely human bloodsucker. The belief was that those who were werewolves in life became vampires after death. I wonder when they separated and became two individual... Cryptid kind of creatures? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. This concept, though, of shape-shifting, we actually see this occurring in some people in terms of their belief systems and their use of blood. And one of those people is Madame Bathory. Ah, where we get the name bathroom from. Courtney, tell me more about her. She was a countess or something, and she would take her slaves and the virgins, of course, and she would bathe in her blood. And she ended up going through all of them that she ended up having to use the Um, virgins of the town. And she was like, oh, I'm just going to teach them at my school. And then all of a sudden they ended up dying also. And then the townsfolk realized that she was killing them so that she would remain young and virgin-like with Mm -hmm. her young skin. She was bathing in their blood. And the townsfolk were like, fuck this. (laughs) Serial killer. Right. (laughs) And so they just kind of locked her away without her young virgins. (laughs) And it was all females too, wasn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. It was the young virgin girls. And I don't know why she didn't want the boys. It had to be female. And so they locked her away and she was not allowed to bathe in the female blood anymore. And she died. Courtney, did you know that actually Elizabeth Bathory killed at least 600 victims, which earned her a Guinness World Record for most prolific female murderer? Wow. What an outstanding achievement. <laughs> 
Shit. And some actually say that she, rather than Vlad the Impaler, might have been the source of inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Well, that would sort of make sense. Mm -hmm. Madame Bathory, by the way, was alive during the period of 1560 to 1614. And she was actually a noble woman who owned land in the kingdom of Hungary. Vampirism isn't ancient history. We actually still have people practicing it today. Yes, an interesting fact. I just found out that more women practice it than men. Really? Yeah, odd fact. According to a 2005 poll, 4% of Americans, 2% of women, and 6% of men believe that vampires truly exist. Oh, wait, that was an, another odd fact I found. According to a 2006 survey of vampire communities, 60% of vampires are women and 38% are men. Wow. I wonder why so many more women. I don't know. Maybe they think they'll still be young like Madame Bathory. Maybe. According to an article published in BU Today, which is Boston University, the article is entitled Real Life Vampires, and it's by Joseph Laycock. There are three major different types of actual vampires. There are lifestyle vampires. These are the people who admire the vampire aesthetic. They may like vampire movies or writers like Anne Rice or Stephanie Meyer, and they may own a set of prosthetic fangs or wear Victorian costumes out to nightclubs. At the end of the day, they know they are no different from anyone else because they don't feed. Then we have real vampires, and these are divided into two different groups. They believe that their physical, mental, and emotional health will deteriorate if they don't feed. So here are the real vampires. Sanguinarian, these are the ones that feed on very small amounts of human blood, generally just a few drops. They do not bite people's necks. They use a syringe or a lancet to feed, and they do so with permission. Then there are psychic vampires. A lot of us know these people. These are the fact that they know people have auras that protect their energy and their chakras and psychic vampires feed by sipping life energy through a tentacle that's attached to those auras. This is something that may or may not be seen by certain people. Ethically, most psychic vampires believe it's okay to feed on people without their knowing if they go to a place where there are a lot of people and they take only small amounts of energy from each. A lot of vampires have consenting donors, people who have lots of energy and don't mind giving some of it away. Funny enough, the really good energy tends to come from creative, passionate type, like artists or religious figures. Hmm. Then there's another type of vampire. They're known as sexual vampires. The most famous of the sexual vampires are the succubus or the female vampire and the incubus or the male vampire. They feed off of sexual energy of their host human. While the sexual vampire can consume sexual energy just from the act of sexual contact, most sexual vampires prefer to extract the full sexual energy from the orgasmic energy of the host human at climax. So there we go. We have psychic vampires. We have sanguinarians who actually drink blood. Only a little bit, though. And we have sexual vampires. And all three of these really do exist. So the article continues to also talk about the fact that the worldwide community of human vampires or real vampires, the psychic, the sanguinarians, and the sexual vampires, they do not see themselves as undead or immortal. And they also cannot be weakened by garlic or vanquished by silver. Thank God. 
or even harmed by holy water. In fact, they're biologically typical in almost all ways, except how they get part of their nourishment, either from human and or animal blood, or by draining psychic energy or energy. Real vampirism isn't a fad that's adopted one day and discarded the next. Actually, they anybody who considers themselves a real vampire would refer to somebody like that as a lifestyler. These vampires feed of what they are convinced is a biological need, one that generally appears during or just after puberty. Without their monthly, weekly, or sometimes daily feeding rituals, vampires claim it becomes difficult for them to function. If they go too long without blood or energy, they can become weak, developing a host of physical and emotional symptoms that only a feeding can soothe. Some vampires, but not all, choose to adopt the trappings of vampiric fashion, such as goth dress and prosthetic fangs. These things are common, but they're not the core of the vampire identity. Rather, they serve as external markers of the vampire's internal state. So in general, vampires like to keep the trappings of their vampirism hidden during the day. It's really rare for one to show up to work in the morning wearing fangs, for example. But when the lights go down and when the shops close up for the night and the moon rises overhead, the fangs go in and the vampires come out. So Courtney's going to share with us some modern day examples of vampire stories that are circulating around the world. We start in the 1970s where uh, rumors were spread that a vampire haunted Highgate Cemetery in London. Amateur vampire hunters flocked in large numbers to the cemetery. Several books have been written about the case, notably by Sean Manchester, a local man who was among the first to suggest the existence of the Highgate vampire and who later claimed to have exercised and destroyed a whole nest of vampires in the area. And then during the late 2002 and early 2003, hysteria about alleged attacks of vampires swept through the African country of Malawi. Mobs stoned one individual to death and attacked at least four others, including Governor Eric Chiway, based on the belief that the government was colluding with vampires. And then in Romania, during February of 2004, Several relatives of the late Toma Petre feared that he had become a vampire. They dug up his corpse, tore out his heart, burned it, and mixed the ashes with water in order to drink it. You said 2004? Yep. In January 2005, rumors began to circulate that an attacker had bitten a number of people in Birmingham, England, fueling concerns about a vampire roaming the streets. However, local police stated that no such crime had been reported. This case appears to be an urban legend. <laughs> and then in 2006, Costas F. Thamu and Sohan Gandhi published a piece that uses geometric progression to attempt to disprove the feeding habits of vampires, saying that if each vampire's nourishment depended on making even one other person a vampire, it would only be a matter of years before the Earth's entire population was among the undead or vampires died out. However, this notion that a vampire's victims must themselves become vampires does not appear in all vampire folklore and is not universally accepted by modern vampire believers. So, Court, did you realize that Catholics were considered vampires by other Christian faiths? No, but it makes sense. So the process of transubstantiation, which is, for those of you who are unaware, the process of um, a priest 
turning wine into blood is the reason why Catholics were considered vampires, because they are the only Christian faith that practices the process of transubstantiation. All the other Christian faiths use it as a symbol, but like an analogy. But the Catholics actually believe it is turned into that. And that makes a lot of sense. So we're going to talk a little bit about why vampirism might have become such an issue and why it might still exist today. So one of the explanations for why we may have vampires or believe in vampires is a blood disease called porphyria. Uh, This is taken from an article written for the post, The Conversation, and it's written by Beth Daly. Basically, porphyria is a blood disease and it's been with us for millennia. It became prevalent among the nobility and the royalty of Eastern Europe. Prophyria is an inherited blood disorder that causes the body to produce less heme, which is a critical component of hemoglobin, the protein in red blood cells that carries oxygen from the lungs to the body tissues. It seems likely that this disorder is the origin of the vampire myth. In fact, prophyria is sometimes referred to as vampire disease. Here's why. We think this might be related to vampires. Sensitivity to sunlight is one of the symptoms. There's extreme sensitivity to sunlight, leading to facial disfigurement, blackened skin, and hair growth. In addition to facial disfigurement, repeated attacks of the disease can cause your gums to recede, exposing your teeth, which then look like fangs. Because the urine of a person with prophyria is dark red, folklore surmised that they were drinking blood. In fact, some physicians had recommended that these patients drink blood to compensate for the defect in their red blood cells. But this recommendation was for animal blood. It's more likely that these patients who only went out after dark were judged to be looking for blood, and their fangs led to folk tales about vampires. The sulfur content of garlic could lead to an attack of prophyria and lead to very acute pain. Thus, patients with this disease would have an aversion to garlic. In the mythology, a vampire is not able to look in a mirror or cannot see its reflection. The facial disfigurement caused by prophyria becomes worse with time, and poor oxygenation leads to destruction of facial tissues and collapse of the facial structure. Patients who have this would understandably avoid wanting to see themselves in mirrors. During the Spanish Inquisition, 600 vampires were reportedly burned at the stake. Some of these accused vampires were just innocent sufferers of prophyria. Prophyria patients have a good reason to fear the Christian faith and Christian symbols, thus why there may be a fear of the crucifix. Hmm. Acute attacks of the disease are associated with considerable pain and both mental and physical disturbance. This condition has been ascribed to the English King George III, although subsequent analysis has shed some doubt on prophyria as the cause of his madness, and probably more likely syphilis. Nowadays, with our scientific knowledge of prophyria, instead of fearing these people, we can love and care for them. It unfortunately remains an incurable disease, and treatment is mainly supportive in terms of pain control, fluids, and avoidance of drugs and chemicals that provoke acute attacks. Some success has been achieved with stem cell transplants. So this is just one possibility of why we think vampires exist. What else is there? There's also been um, tuberculosis or consumption 
Um, We've also seen premature burial or rabies. During tuberculosis outbreak, people often blame the first victim of the disease. They believed him to be a vampire and they would dig him up and drive a stake through his heart. The corpse would then appear to spring to life and cry out. But staking a bloated, decomposing corpse forces the accumulated gases in the body to escape. And this produced a groan-like sound as the gases are forced past the vocal cords and out the throat. The other thing about tuberculosis is people were often coughing up blood. Yeah. So it looked like in order for them to produce the blood, they might have been consuming blood is what people thought. Oh, well. Mostly because they didn't have a good grasp on anatomy and how the lungs work. Makes sense. Additionally, people expected a body in the ground to decompose as quickly as one exposed to the elements. So they suspected vampirism when a cadaver looked unexpectedly well-preserved, bloated as though gorged with blood, with blood on its lips. But corpses naturally swell as gases from decomposition accumulate in the body, squeezing the lungs and forcing blood to ooze from the nose and mouth. In addition, the skin and gums contract to expose the teeth more prominently, making the canine teeth look perhaps a bit like fangs. Don't forget, people were not embalmed back then. We didn't have all that fun stuff. (laughs) So, ladies and gentlemen... Now is the time for you to put down your cup of coffee and think about, do vampires really exist? And I ask that because the question really is, are there people who need the blood? Or the energy. Mm -hmm. And if they do, does that make them a vampire? Or is it because of some deficiency or disease that they have? And is it possible that all these vampire legends we've shared with you all bear some truth to them in one way or another. So, as always, we tell you to keep it weird, keep it wonderful, and keep it woohoo.